I would do a great job in Washington and I would serve, you know, my constituents well, but I'm also at a disadvantage of getting to Washington because I'm not corrupt. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I'm going to kick off with Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And as ever, as I tell you every show, I've not sold a single sat through Gemini yet. Why? Well, look at the price of Bitcoin. It's mooning. We're in a bull market. I'm selling my sats. Nobody's getting my sats cheap. And you know what? I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I. Next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, Bitcoiners, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, I'm still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Lie software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, we have the amazing Compass Mining. And they're not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs. I am now back mining Bitcoin. And with this price rise, I've nearly covered the cost of one of my S19s. I bought five. So hopefully, over the space of a year, they'll all be paid off. It is so good to be back mining. You know what? I really like these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And it can be easy for you. If you want to mine Bitcoin, you just pick your location, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the work for you. If you're interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. And also, let's talk about BlockFi who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. Not just that. You earn 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership and 2% back on everything you spend over $50,000 annually. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So it was something unique your dad gave you? My dad gave me a unique name, Erica Rhodes. I went a month without having a name, and then my because my parents couldn't agree on a name. Right, a month, a whole month, and then finally they agreed on Erica Simone Rhodes. Wow, my son went a, d- a day without a name. And what did you name your son? Connor. Oh, that's a good name. So what happened is I wanted to call him Axel after Axel Rose, and my ex-wife wanted to call him Bailey, which I didn't like. She didn't like Axel; she thought it was horrible. I thought Bailey sounded like a dog, so we didn't have a name for a day. And uh, my dad's Irish. Uh, his uh, mum's, uh, his grandma's Irish. And so he had an Irish surname, which was McCormack. So we went with Connor, Connor McCormack. Nice. Yeah. So I hope to be a mom one day. Well, it's, uh, it's got its own challenges. Yeah, I'm a teacher. I, know, I definitely know about that. What, what, what age do you teach? So I teach K through sixth grade science. Um, but I literally taught kinder through 12th grade. Um, but I'm in my sweet spot I love teaching science to elementary school kids. It's the most extraordinary thing. 
I can imagine. Yeah. Six. Well, because you get to see the, the aha moments and their eyes light up and they get really excited about all the different experiments. Burning magnesium? See, I say that again. Do you set fire to magnesium? No. <laughs> that was always my favorite thing in science. <laughs> just burn magnesium. No, we don't, don't do that. I know Avengers as well. So sixth grade is what age? Um, 11, 12, depending on their birthday. Okay. So that's my daughter's age. Okay. Yeah, so you she, have two kids. Yeah, I've got a 17-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter. Nice. Each with their own unique and individual challenges, both age-based, gender-based, attitude-based, personality-based. They are completely individual, and I love them both. That's good. And let them be their authentic self. Yeah, that's something I've learned. You know what? Uh, you mature as a parent. I was 25 when my son was born, and um, I was 31 when my daughter was born, and I think I was too young to be a parent at 25. I wasn't ready. I didn't have the maturity yet to raise a child and teach them right. I probably still don't. <laughs> so you love being a teacher. I do love being a teacher. It's actually why I filed to run for Congress is because when the pandemic hit, even though we knew this, but it really exposed the disparities in education. Because when we had to go on Zoom. We saw so many kids that didn't have access to internet. They didn't have the devices. They were unable to um, have a learning environment that set them up for success. And when you see those disparities, it's to me, I can't just sit back and accept that. And so I filed. It's a, a, a huge reason why I filed. And I really want to serve on the Education and Labor Committee in Congress. And more importantly, not more important, but equally important to that is I, I'm really seeing that a lot of kids don't have personal finance. And I and so something that's very near and dear to my heart is teaching financial literacy, making that mandatory in school, that when kids graduate from high school, they have they understand financial literacy and they're able to uh, make wise investments and just know how the banking system works. They know how to budget, save, and all those kind of things. And um, it's it's just, it was heartbreaking to hear high school students, seniors, didn't even know the difference between a debit and credit card. You know, and I wrote a whole yeah. article about it to Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin Magazine, yeah. yeah. Because I just, and I really appreciate them also caring about financial literacy because it was just the craziest thing to me, you know, that they, they they couldn't even decipher the difference. Yes. So there's, um wow, there's a lot to unpack even on that starting bit. And I'm, I'm really glad to meet you. Uh, I've been following you on Twitter and uh, I saw your engagement with Jack Dorsey and I, was, I just knew I had to try and find a way to talk to you. Um, a lot to unpack there, especially the, let's start with the pandemic stuff. And uh, I know there's that disparity. We had the same in the UK. Uh, I tell you another thing it taught me is a much higher respect for teachers. Thank you. I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I specifically remember that first morning being sat down with my daughter and we were doing math. And uh, as I said, she's 11. And um, I was trying to help her and talk her through this. And this is a one-on-one. -on -one. I'm not in a class. How many kids in your class? Um, up to 30. Up to 30. So this is a class of one. I was trying to explain it to her. And then she wasn't getting it, and I got frustrated. And then she ended up getting annoyed, and I got annoyed. And then it just broke down. I was like, I was like, Jesus! And you have to do this with a class of thirty. I think, uh, I think we massively undervalue a lot of people in society. And one of those is teachers. I agree. And massively undervalue them. Uh, there's a really interesting thing within the Bitcoin community where a lot of Bitcoiners talk about homeschooling because they 
struggle with ideas around the topics which are being taught as well, and which is another thing I want to ask you about, about the pressures you or you or your colleagues have within the system. But let's talk about that disparity because uh, my kids had to work from home. They had a computer each. They had a laptop connection. I worked from home so I could be there and look after them. It was a, it was a, we had a fine scenario. Um, I know in the UK there was additional problems, not only of having devices and connections, parents who maybe had to work, also parents who actually relied on the school lunches as a meal. That was a new meal they had to provide and already financially struggling had to think about that as well. There's a footballer in the UK called Marcus Rashford who uh, campaigned to uh, ensure that there were meals being provided, as that as well. So, look, I'm, I'm aware of the topic. Um, talk to me about your experience as a teacher doing this. Yeah, so a lot of the things that you mentioned is why I was really frustrated that none of our leaders were advocating for these things. And, you know, just because kids can't vote doesn't mean that they don't deserve representation. And so it really set me off. And so I, uh, with the food, for example, that's one really good example. Another one is like, we are, as educators, are mandated reporters. And so if there's child abuse happening in the home, no one's there to detect it. Mm -hmm. And there's all these different things that just got kind of swept under the rug during the pandemic. And I feel like kids need a champion in Washington. Um, I, again, the internet, we had kids like high school and college kids trying to find like Wi-Fi, trying to study in a parking lot so they can access Wi-Fi. You have kids that have three or four, um, parents that have three or four kids in the home, but maybe one or two devices. The internet's slow. It's cutting in and out. It's just, it just shows that we just took a dynamite, threw it in our education system and widened the achievement gap. And so the kids that couldn't afford, like, the nannies to sit there or or have a, a mom that sacrificed her job to be able to sit with their child, not every family can do that. And so we need to make education a priority, and um, that's why I'm running. <laughs> okay. Kids are now back in school? Yes. Okay. So what has the impact been on the lockdown on those kids? Have you... Uh, have kids been able to get back up to speed? Is there now an educational disparity that you're dealing with? What, what's that? Writing. I think the the, the writing is significant. Um, I've seen kids that can't even write a complete sentence. Um, there's a lack of literacy, um, being able to read at grade level. Many kids are reading well below grade level, which was already a problem. Um, I would say just pretty much every content area, there's there's a... Um, there's relapse in that. And just critical thinking. Mm -hmm. I think like just being able to think about things deeply or to ask meaningful questions um, we're not seeing like we would see before. And then the social emotional aspect of like just socializing. Think about it. Kindergartners started their education on Zoom and they didn't have those social interactions. I mean, people underestimate the value of recess. Recess is a very important part of a child's development. Mm -hmm. And so they started school on Zoom with no social interaction. And then now there's, there's dependency on their parents. So they don't even have, know how to be self-efficacious. And so we have a lot of work to do in education um, because of the pandemic. And I do think that kids should be in classrooms. Within the classes that you were teaching, were you already aware of wealth disparity with that pre-pandemic? So you know those who are from maybe more challenged, uh, economically challenged yes. situations. Mm -hmm. um, 
did that disparity, were you able to close that gap within, uh, the, within the school? Or is that something that's going to naturally exist? I think if we don't modernize our education system, it will continue to widen and exist. Okay, so this is a real problem. Okay, just out of interest, why did you always want to be a teacher? Is this something? No. You, how did you end up becoming a teacher? I did not want to be a teacher. What ended up happening was I um, met a woman who was an onset tutor, mm-hmm. and she was um, telling me about. It. I was like, "Wow, what a sweet gig between jobs, or you know, just a part-time job situation." And so I ended up deciding to pursue that. Um, so I can pursue it, whatever endeavors I wanted to do at the time. And when I went in to do my observation hours, I went into a classroom of fifth graders that were reading at a first and second grade level. And immediately I thought, what an injustice. How do we have fifth graders about to go to middle school that cannot read? That's just not okay to me. And so I switched my major and I have devoted my life to education ever since. I chose to um, focus on science education because I think for me, I'm a forward thinker. I felt like that's going to be the jobs of the future. Critical thinking is is just is just an imperative. And it's the one discipline where you can engage kids out of, of all ages, backgrounds, and, and lift them up in all the other content areas. Because if you're fun and dynamic and you do hands-on, kids love the class. And so you can, you can slip in the reading, you can slip in the math, and they'll take to it. And so I, got, I ended up getting to fast forward. I got my master's in curriculum instruction with an emphasis in science. I was teacher of the years by the LA Clippers in 2012. Ooh. And I write curriculum that bakes in all the other content areas, puts um, puts pressure on the importance of hands-on learning and project-based learning and inspires kids to think innovatively and and to persevere and have grit. So you kind of like, let's say I'm doing a lab or a lesson it's designed to make them struggle and to not quit and to and to think another way. Well, what's another way you can do it? Well, that's not working. Try another. And so it's always making them fail, essentially. Build resilience. And to build resilience, to, to be able to pull themselves out to get to the final result. And that is why, you know, I think I've been very successful in the teaching profession. And I hope to bring that to Washington. That's in opposition to the participation trophy culture that's built around youngsters. <laughs> I remember my... Son's first football tournament where they didn't, no team was allowed to win. I, th- I thought it was bullshit. That's not the real world. Yeah. And, I, and I do push back against that. I understand why people are for that, but that's not the real world. Okay, so in terms of the curriculum you build for the students, what is the framework you have to operate within? To the build standards. The, yeah. So you start with the, um, either, depending on the school, but California State Standards or the Next Generation Science Standards. Okay. And so you use that as your, your base. And then you dream up depending on the school you're at, mm-hmm. curriculum that will elevate those standards to make sure that kids are proficient in those con- in that in those with those within those standards. And is there much pushback or challenge with regards to the standards that are given to you? I'm obviously aware at the moment, uh, particular areas of biology are a, a, an important area of debate right now with regards to gender. That's a, that's a particular subject. Yeah, you know, um, it's been brought up, but because I teach at the elementary level, I don't experience You'd have it to deal with that. Like maybe a middle school teacher would. Okay. And I think that, 
you know, we have to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. I think that everything should be age appropriate. Mm-hmm. And when a kid is uh, develop, it's developmentally appropriate and where they're able to digest and understand what is being talked about. Um, that's my personal and professional opinion. Um, but it's not something that I'm addressing currently. Okay. okay. But, I, but parents, I'm sure... Mm are concerned about those things. Yeah, I mean, it, it, within the um, education system in, in my kids' school, that that is a changing topic at the moment that's uh, up for discussion. Well, how do you feel about it? Hmm, it's, it's a really, really interesting one. Um, I think it's important to teach about sex and gender and talk about the uh, the variety of... The variety of... How do I put this? The variety of genders that people f- may feel... They identify identify and embody. And I think that's important to do. Uh, The one place I think it stepped too far is in one of their classes. I think it's PSE or PSH. I can't remember what it is. Uh, There was an explanation that um, they they were to, for me, confuse sex and gender. So they had uh, a body of a uh, child, a boy and a body of a girl. But rather than say boy or girl, it was person with penis, person with vagina. I thought that was a step too far. Okay, I've never seen that. Yeah, so that was because they didn't want to offend anybody who identified as a different gender. Um, And it's not to say that uh, it shouldn't be discussed. I think it should be discussed, but it went a step too far for me without it being explained to me as a parent. And I, for schools having um, parent nights where parent education, where you can have that dialogue before maybe it reaching a child, but that's the discretion of the school, right? The Mm. school should extend that conversation like, hey, what are your thoughts? Take surveys, take polls. What are your comfort levels? Because there also has to be support at home too. Mm -hmm. You know, this, I like to think of teaching as like a team. Like, let's say you were a parent, like I had your children, like we're a team now. I so agree. I think that we need to be able to have that dialogue and bring parents along the way. Because if you don't, then when you do present something that they may not feel comfortable with, now it causes more problems. And it could have been prevented had there been, you know, a pre-dialogue before introducing X, Y, and Z. Well, that's why uh, I strongly uh, dislike any aggression towards teachers. Uh, and I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter Twitter recently where there's been like <laughs> clashes between teachers yeah. and parents. And I'm thinking th- th- these people are spending more time with your children. They're, they're one of the most important parts of their education. Yeah. You need to have a relationship. And I have a relationship with the the, parent, uh, the teachers of my children. And I, I, I fundamentally ag- ag- agree with you. Um, okay, so with regards, you're obviously venturing down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which is cool, which is you're welcome. Thank um, you. There are a range of views of people within Bitcoin. There are any, a lot of people within Bitcoin who believe in smaller government or small government and some no government. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a range and there is a spectrum. Uh, I personally am for smaller government where possible, mm-hmm. but I'm not uh, uh, someone for no government. Um, but I believe in government accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... I think we're in a very bad place with with the role, what the role government's playing at the moment, whether it's the UK, the US, wherever. Um, what do you believe the role of government is yourself? What is, what's your like personal thesis? That's such a a, a big question. I know. Yeah, sorry. But to say it simply, I think the government's responsibility is to represent and serve people, mm-hmm. and I think what 
happening is that the government's not listening to the needs of people. And therefore, people are not seeing a change in their daily lives. And that's where a lot of the friction is coming from. Um, When I was campaigning during the Democratic primary for Andrew Yang, I was in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. And so I went to all parts of the country, very far right to the very far left. And, you know, you, what you realize is that everyone really wants the same thing. Yep. You know what I mean? They want autonomy over their life. They want to put food on the table. They want their kid to get a good education. They want to not have to live paycheck to paycheck, healthcare, et cetera. And so what we're seeing in government, though, is that their interests and what they're fighting and advocating for are their donors. Mm-hmm. And, and it has nothing to do with people because the average person doesn't have disposable income to participate in the election process and to participate actively in, the, in their gover- in the government. They just can't. And so I feel we need new representation, people that are rational, that can reach and work across the aisle to find common ground so we can start to serve American people, like to serve our constituents and the people in our in our country. And I think if we can repair that relationship, then we won't have so much friction. So I've, I would imagine that like a lot of people would first get into politics would feel like this. And then something <laughs> goes wrong somewhere. And I'm imagining the horse trading of, uh, of Washington is what ends up putting people in a position where they're having to maybe can't means, represent. How do you feel about that? But that means that they're unprincipled. Of course. If someone can get to Washington and they can waver on what they stand for, they weren't principled in, to begin with. They didn't have morals and values to begin with. And for me, even as a candidate, I have walked away from a lot of big donors. Okay. A, like people that have extreme wealth. And I'm like, you know what? Your values don't align with mine. I'll go the longer, harder, moral, just way because that money is not money that I want in my campaign. Because I'm principled. My parents raised me to stand for something and not fall for just anything. And so I think that's why it's a double-edged sword to be in my position, right? Like I would do a great job in Washington and I would serve, you know, my constituents well, but I'm also at a disadvantage of getting to Washington because I'm not corrupt, you know what I mean? And so we if we don't get people, like the everyday person to be able to get, if they can't get, and we need to get them involved in the election process mm-hmm. and vote and donate and get behind candidates like myself, Reverend Wendy, all these amazing people running, that's how we'll end up changing government. Because like even my incumbent, Congressman Brad Sherman, a lot of his money comes from big banks, pawn shops, you know, big corporations. Big banks. Big banks. That's why he won't like Bitcoin. <laughs> It's true though. Yeah, I know. And it's like, but that's who he's trying to represent. Mm-hmm. And but when you look at my campaign and you go to FEC filing, it's all individual contributions. We have more individual contributions than he does from all 50 states, America, Samoa, DC, and Puerto Rico. And their average contribution is $40. And we've been able to be have six figures cash on hand. So, like, so with that said, when people get to Washington, and they change like that, it's because they weren't principled to begin with and that they seek power. Well, you better win. I hope so. We got to rehab. We have, we're trying. Are, you know, you know, our team is not, I'm not a polished person. You know, I'm really just someone that saw some things that I didn't like. And I felt it was my responsibility to do something about it. Been that way my whole life. 
And we are working nonstop in order to do that, literally for over a year. And it, not to get like emotional or anything, but it's like, this is our race to lose. I think that the community, which is the San Fernando Valley, is getting behind my race. They're inspired by my race. And I think the country has gotten inspired by my race. And I think that there's this, this, this is the moment where we can show everyday working people can stand up to the Brad Shermans of the world, the big banks, and say enough is enough that the working class people have a voice too, and that we belong in, we, we deserve representation. We deserve to not have to be hit with bank fees in a pandemic. I was dying when I saw how much the big banks made in just bank fees during the pandemic or politicians making money off the back of the poor, the injustice of it. And so I really think that this is our race to win. We're in a position to win. We're very, very viable. I'm working my butt off to make sure that we pull this off. But it's going to take a coalition of people that decide that they are also fed up and joining me. This is a mass movement. And I just feel very confident that we can get there. And I really honestly don't like the fact that he is trying to ban Bitcoin. It honestly pisses me off. And for a number of reasons. One, a lot of young people have made this investment. Two, a lot of single mothers have made this investment. Three, a lot of people have pulled themselves out of poverty because of Bitcoin, and you are over there trying to ban it. And I take great issue with that. And you never once came to your district and talked to these people and asked them how they feel about it. That's not being a representative. Because when I go around my district and I talk to people and I casually bring up Bitcoin and they hear that that's what you're working on, out of all the things to be working on in Washington, that's what you're working on, I take great issue with it. So I'm in this fight with the Bitcoin community and he, he's going to have to earn it this time. It's not going to be handed on a silver putter. He can have all the big bank money, all the corporate PAC money, whatever, we're going to prevail. I really believe that in all of my heart. I just, I just do. And I'm starting to get on a little rant, but, no, it's, do it. it's, but the, it's like, it's time for him to go. Well, it's funny you should say that because I feel like we're at a moment in time where like people have, people have always never really trusted politicians. It's, right. You know, I, when I say like, I, I, I believe in democracy, I'm a reluctant supporter of democracy because I'm usually picking between shit party A, shit party B. Right. Um, but um, I think the pandemic really shone a lens on what these people stand for. I mean, yep. just uh, I'll give the UK as an example. When we had the lockdowns and the lockdown started, lots of small businesses went to the wall. Lots of people lost their businesses or had to rack up debts to support themselves. Everybody in government keeps their job. Yep. Everybody is protected within government. We are perfectly aware of the, the massive contracts that went to friends of people in parliament. We, we know all of this. Um, I think we're in this moment in time where people are really recognizing the system is fundamentally broken. And not just broken at a political level, but broken because of the media too. But it's fundamentally broken. People need champions and heroes. They need Erica's who are going to come in and, and make a difference. So I think, I think you have a moment in time now to, to do this. Um, so my question really for you is like, what actually happens in the race? Explain to me, because you know, I'm not from the US. Mm -hmm. I don't understand US politics as well as I should. Uh, I, I understand you're running for Congress, which is... The House of Representatives. House of, yeah, yeah, not the Senate. There's 
500 Congress people, was it? Oh, 435. And, and 100 in the Senate. Right. Yeah, okay. So you're, you're running to be one of the 400. Does that mean you represent you represent a particular area of California? Yes. The, the, the California 30th District, which is the West San Fernando Valley, is the, is the um, seat that I'm buying for. Okay. So how does the whole process work? T- t- explain to me where we're at. I want to talk about donors as well. Explain to me where we're at when the important votes are. Okay. Explain me this process. Okay, so right now we are about eight months away from the primary, and mm-hmm. it's an open primary, so that means it doesn't matter your political affiliation. You get to be if you get on the ballot, anyone can vote for you, and um, that vote takes place on June seventh of twenty twenty two. Okay. So we need every single person in the San Fernando Valley to vote for Erica Rhodes. Then if we come in one or two, it's the first top two. So it could be like Brad and myself, Brad and another candidate, or myself and another candidate. Just the top two people out of all the people running. Then move on to the general election. And then the general election determines who's going to be the next representative of the the 30th district. So in some ways, you're not really competing against Brad Sherman as much now as the other people on the I am absolutely just competing against Brad because we're the only one that's the most viable to unseat him. What I mean is your goal now is to become top two. Yes, we have to be top two. Yeah, so... Right now, whilst you are up against Brad Sherman, you, you're really also up against anyone else who's on the paper because right. you want to be in the top two. Right. Yeah. Technically, yes. Technically, yes. So is anyone of any substance on the paper yet? I'm going to just use data and the FEC filing. We have the most money by a lot. So, and Brad Sherman has, as of today, almost $4 million cash on hand. We have the second highest amount of money cash on hand. Okay. Everyone else is, no one else even has six figures. So why is the why is the money so important? Because you have to get your name out there. So that's- okay, it's can- marketing. Right, marketing. So canvassing materials, ads, um, being able to get on the ballot, like just even to put your bio in the pamphlet I please, this is not for certain. I think, like from the history, we think it's about twenty thousand dollars. But just to even get your bio in the pamphlet that goes to all the voters is like twenty thousand dollars, right? Right. And so, um, as of what we, I think that's what it is. I'm not sure what the new number is or how much it's going to cost. So it's just those expenses that you have to pay for. But for me, because I'm of the people, a lot of the money that we use. We do good along the way. So, for example, we started a lending library program, which it creates a community of readers. And so our campaign, um, we'll, we'll have kids paint them and we install them in our community. And so whether we win or lose, something good comes out of it. And um, we started different programs and we do community events and outreach to get people just aware of how the the election's going, how government works, what's why they should get involved in our race. So it's not just like throwing up a billboard or something like that. We actually are trying to educate our voters on why this election is so important. So a lot of our money has been for that. Okay. One of the things I dislike in politics is the campaigning and uh, messaging of why you shouldn't vote for the other person. Why you shouldn't? Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to why they should vote for you. So why shouldn't? They? Now I know you have to criticize the opposition. You have to point out their faults, but you also need to promote yourself. Why mm-hmm. you are a brilliant candidate? But I feel like the the side which is criticizing 
it, it ends up taking over. So when you watch like the presidential debates, mm. it tends to de- degenerate uh, uh, into uh, arguments about who is at fault for what and blaming, and, mm. uh, and rather than people saying, saying, "Look, I disagree with him, but th- these are my policies. Mm. This is what I want to do." H- how much do you feel like it, you're now somebody who's campaigning? Like, how drawn into that process do you feel? And how is your approach going to be? 90, I've been running since 2020, so over a year. And I would say 1% has ever been, like, about Brad. 99% of it has been about the new vision that we have for our districts, the future, what we can be, and showing and modeling what new leadership will look like in our district. I agree with you. I think... If you're going to run for office, it can't just be because you dislike the incumbent. You have mm-hmm. to be for something. And I'm mm-hmm. for education reform, foster care reform, you know, really meaningfully address, you know, um, the disparities in education, promoting small businesses and, and community service. I think I personally feel public servants should also be in the community giving back and doing community service hours. I Even if I lose, I would not even get behind a candidate that wasn't clocking in hours in their community. You need to be in the community. You need to know what is happening. And so a lot of our, most of our campaign is about that. And I think that's why we've taken off in the way that we have is because people are seeing a clear contrast between Brett and I, and that's through our actions. So it doesn't even have to be um, said. It goes without saying, to be honest. Okay. So big campaign coming for you. Yes. Um, But I do want to talk a little bit about Brad Sherman. Um, He appears to be somebody who is now just part of the Washington elite. I don't know a lot about him. Uh, The only things I really know about him is he's uh, anti-Bitcoin, which is a problem for me because I see Bitcoin as a tool. I see it as optionality for people to save and protect wealth and uh, and route around the, the political and banking system. So that's the only thing I really know about Brad. But tell me a little bit more about him. What's he been good for? Has he been good for anything? Like, why do people like him? Why do people dislike him? So, um, I've lived in the San Fernando Valley my whole adult life. And I have not really seen him do anything to elevate and improve our community. Um, He really focuses on supporting the people that donate to him. So if you're not a big donor, like a big bank or, you know, he doesn't really look after you. Mm -hmm. And I think people are fed up with that. And I think you said something incredibly important is that during the pandemic, people paid attention. People woke up and and they really saw the importance of government. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I think that's what's happened in our our community is that people are seeing, wait, he doesn't really do anything. He's not really fighting for anything. He's not improving. He's not passing or fighting for legislation that helps everyday people. Like, you know, people speak with their deeds. And if you look at the bills that he's introduced, they're not really for everyday people. That's not his priority. Where, you know, for me, when I go into Washington, I know the things I'm going to introduce and I know the things I'm going to fight for. And it's the antithesis of what he's fighting for. So do the bills he introduced, do they tend to... Hmm. Favor, favor big donors. Ideas that support the industries that he. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like he's running, like the wanting to ban Bitcoin, for example. Yeah. Well, who's that? Who who does that help? Banks. Exactly. So that's his priority. But we have a lot of issues. Just going back to the education, we why aren't you fighting for that stuff? Well, we have an infrastructure and a build back better bill. I don't even see you talking about it. Well, it sounds to me like 
the system of do- donors and donations itself is broken. Yeah. It feels to me a, a, a form of legalized bribery in some ways, like a loose bribe. Right. You know, if if you could if you could map bills to donors, it would be very obvious that this isn't in the best interest of the people. This mm-hmm. is in the best interest of the of the bourgeoisie. Right. And that is not correct. That feels like something that should be reformed itself. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, and I said this so many times on the campaign trail, it's not the sexiest thing to run on, but campaign, campaign finance needs to take precedent because it's it's our government's corrupt in, in that sense. The fact that even me as a teacher thinking like, how do I raise a million dollars is insane. You know, I even had a thought. I was like, you know, maybe once we hit this million dollar goal, maybe then we just stop asking everyday people for money and win it just off a million to show that you don't need 115 million, $20 million for a race. And if you lose, where does all that money go? It's, you know, it's just, it's just so maddening because it's, because I genuinely want to serve. Yeah. And the fact that the money piece is just such a, stressful part of it is is just under really underscores why we need the campaign finance so something that i'm for on my campaign um and one of the two policies that i'm very for is ranked choice voting so we're not voting the you know the you know between two evils or whatnot and democracy dollars and i um democracy dollars basically gives everybody every american citizen a hundred dollars that they could put into whatever candidate that they want to okay. and so now that allows someone like a teacher a bus driver an engineer nurse whatever to be able to properly participate in the election process so it's not the big donors that are having to say it's the Everyone gets a say, and it and it and it makes it. We're American, and this is a part of what we do. And I also think that we should shorten how long um, you can campaign for, because like a year and a half. I mean, that's a long time to be campaigning for votes. You know, I think that we might have to restructure. The, well, you've, the time. Also, you've also got a job to do. While he's a full time politician, I work full time as a teacher, yeah. so I get up at four. I work four. I do. I've been doing it for a year now. That's why why I have like bags. There's no bags. You look but great. But it's like literally get up at four, work for a couple hours. Sometimes I'll hit up a neighborhood and just put door hangers up, um, or go to coffee shops and talk to everyday people, and then go to work. As soon as I get off work, it's like we go door knocking or phone banking up until. Nine o'clock legally is when you have to stop. And then it's another two hours of just responding to emails and constituents or whatnot. Um, And the fact that I've done all of that while working a full-time job and we're this viable underscores how badly I want change. No one puts themselves through this. I was literally door knocking one day. We were going for so long. My feet were so swollen. And I was like, you know what, just... 10 more doors, 20 more doors, because for the next generation, I was like, you know, there's so much writing on this. And I don't want to, I don't want to get to the end of this and lose and say, I wish I would have. I wish I would have knocked on that one more door. So we're, we're literally doing every and anything we can to win this. This is, this is the, I think, the most important race of 2022, because it is David versus Goliath. It is this, this, guy that 
loves and wants to keep power toward against this teacher that really wants and loves change and needs that for her future kids I don't have yet, my students. I need them to see this. I need them to see this win. I need them to know that if they don't like something, that they can do something about it and do it the moral just way and, and that, that it is possible. You know, our whole campaign has been literally from day one. People say, you're never going to beat him. You're never going to, he's cutthroat. He's bullish. He's little. Watch. And we've come this far and we're showing that it is possible. If people can just help us get there, we can do it. Sorry, I get very uh, no. Passionate. You should like <laughs> God. It's infectious. You know, it's infectious because this is what you want. This yeah. is the kind of passion you want to represent. You politicians should represent the constituents. That is their role. It's not to represent big business. It's not to represent elites. It's to represent the people. Yeah. So your passion is infectious, and I want you to win. Thank you. Absolutely, want you to win. How much do you need to raise? A million dollars. A million dollars. That's a by January. That's a target. We we have to raise one million dollars by the end of January. Why do you have to? Because we need to be able to put in place everything for the get out the vote. Okay, but but it's a target. Like if you hit nine hundred thousand, it doesn't mean you can't run. It makes it harder. harder. We did the math. Mm-hmm. We don't need what Brad Sherman has. He's always going to have more money than mm-hmm. us. We just need the million dollars to ensure we can finish executing our path to victory. Okay. And so when we when we calculated all the things that we need in order to make sure that people know that they have a choice, this primary, it ended up equaling 1.1 million. We have 200,000 on cash. Or we've raised to almost 200,000 and we have a little over 100,000. Over what period did you raise 200,000? Over a year. Over a year. Yeah, but Q3 was big for us. I think the Bitcoin community, when we took a stance, you guys definitely came in and supported. Thank you so much. And I will forever be grateful and loyal, just FYI. Um, And so that was huge for us. But... Brad is fundraising. He's campaigning. And we. I also need to be able to put X amount of money away to prepare for a debate with him on so Bitcoin. So you need, uh, in four months, is it end of January? End January 30th, yeah. Okay, so in, and basically we're mid-up three and a half months, you need to raise another 800,000. I know. It's doable. You think so? I think so. Why do you do think you, that? Well, I just... Hopefully, some Bitcoiners will listen and understand and support. Uh, are you allowed international donations? No. So the, I can't donate. No, but okay. you can ask people that you know. But it's so you have to be a United States citizen. Okay. Max donation is twenty nine hundred dollars. That's okay. the most that someone can donate to a political campaign at the congressional level. But what about the corporations? The heels are PAC money that he gets. What does that mean? Explain to so me. that means that like a PAC money is where like someone creates a PAC and they get a lot of people to donate money to it and then they put it to a, a candidate that they like. Like a pool of cash. Right. And we don't take that. You don't take PAC money. We don't want dirty money. I want to be beholden okay. to people and that's it and that's all. Okay, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Let's talk about Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, regular listeners know, especially the ones who hear these ads every week, UX is super important to me. I think UX makes Bitcoin a lot easier for no coiners to come in to learn about Bitcoin and use Bitcoin. So when Exodus reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app and they crushed it, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. 
and with their mobile wallet you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, let's talk about Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, listen, Bitcoin's mooning again. And if you have not got a Casa multi-sig wallet, it's something you really should be thinking about. Because forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you, as a Bitcoiner, to take custody of your Bitcoin. But you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, I've been a customer for over a year, so if you've got any questions, you can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And lastly, let's talk about Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming. Do you know why? Why they accept Bitcoin? Yes, you can deposit your Bitcoin on Sportsbet.io and go out there and make a few bets. Now, the football season is well underway. It's been a great start. Liverpool are doing pretty well. Tottenham have had a ropey middle bit. It's kind of going how we want it. But look, even if you don't like football, Sportsbet have got you covered. Alongside football, they support tennis, they support motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io forward slash promotions. So we, we need to get your message out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to, Weigh in and and say who are what I understand about Brad Sherman or yourself. You're just obviously somebody who's uh, very likable and thank you. And I believe that you represent the best interests of children, which is the most important thing, really. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about financial literacy because let's do it. this is a subject that's important for you. I think this is something that Bitcoiners are very aware of that we're not teaching financial literacy. Mm-hmm. My, yeah, I've been trying to teach my children about it because they don't get taught it at school. Um, the only finance they get taught as if they study economics at A level. I don't know if you know we have GCSEs and A levels in the UK, but uh, A levels is uh, 16 to 18. They might do a little bit of business beforehand, but but that's really the economy itself. It's not actual financial literacy. Mm. Um, so it's something we're all aware of. And the, I mean, look, it's, it's a bigger question as like the entire setup of the school. Are we really teaching things that kids require right now are we teaching them to memorize facts when they've got a supercomputer in their pocket right but you know practical skills financial literacy is probably one of the most important things we should teach people absolutely so talk to me about your passion for financial literacy i think my i don't think i know my passion for financial literacy was when i taught second grade many years ago and i felt it was important to teach kids how to save money and how to invest money. So I took my second graders and I said, you know, we are going to have a class bank account. And our job is to fill this bank account with money and then invest it into something awesome. Okay. And so we read Freckle Juice and then they created a Freckle Juice stand and we created like different types of Freckle Juice. What's Freckle Juice? So basically it's basically a book. Okay. And it's um, this juice to get freckles away, take freckles away. And then, but they created their own, they invented their own and then we sold it. Like almost like a lemonade stand, like a Freckle Juice stand. Mm -hmm. And we sold it to parents at the school and other kids and we had, and we did it for three weeks and we raised a couple thousand and we put it in our class bank account. Then we started a class newspaper and we sold newspapers and we put it in our bank account. Long story short, by the end of the year, the kids had thousands of dollars 
in their class bank account. And they, so they, and we charted it, we graphed it. Okay. So we started here and then we did, and I, that's where the math came in. Oh, so we started here. So how much more do we need to get to this and then this? And then we just had like a line chart. And at the end, the kids were so mindful of how they invested the money because it's like they worked hard for mm -hmm. it. They earned it. Mm -hmm. And then that was when I was like, this needs to be taught in school. This, this needs to be taught in every school, you know, and today, some of those kids, they're now in, um, they're ninth graders. So when I had them, it's like, they're now ninth graders, but they, they still talk to me about that, that, that lesson, the overarching lesson, and they're more conscientious about money. And I think with having like Bitcoin and the advancements of blockchain technologies and the mining, I think it's the jobs of the future. I think Bitcoin's going to be the finance of the future, like the, the future of finance. And so if we're not teaching kids about financial literacy and the, the future of finance, how are they going to be set up for the jobs of the future? Right. Like oh, right. I, I, I really personally think that Bitcoin's like the next big internet. Like I just think it's just a matter of time. And I really encourage lawmakers to take the time to understand. Am I still learning about Bitcoin? Absolutely. I'm reading. We I'm, all are always learning about Bitcoin. We're always learning. And CJ, Corey, they they they're always sending me information and all these great articles. And I'm and I literally was thinking the other day and I was reading an article, I was like, God. There's gonna be there's so much economic prosperity that can come from this. It's unbelievable. And so I think that we need to start shifting our curriculum to really look at personal finance, savings accounts, you know, uh, debit credit cards, um, retirement, all these different things. And what's happening with the crypto space? What is what does that mean for your future? Are you like I I just think it, it, it's just something that it's not gonna go away. And so now we as adults have a moral responsibility to educate them on it. And that's just how I feel about it. How were you orange-pilled? You know, it's <laughs> it's funny because Dennis Porter, Dennis Porter, yeah. Yeah, he reached out to me because um I guess Brad did like a hearing and really was going really hard about banning Bitcoin. And he just asked me very casually about my position on it. And I said, well, of course I'm not for banning it. Like, why would anyone do that? Is that what he's really doing? And um, and then so he got me on a Zoom call with all these amazing influential Bitcoiners. And they took two to three hours just walking me through it from all aspects of, of this industry. And the passion was so inspiring. And then they gave me books. They're like, you, but you do your own research. And I love that. They're like, you do your own research. Do your own research. And you decipher yourself. And then that's kind of how it all evolved after that. And then I just said, did you know, our campaign's going to accept Bitcoin. And so we accept Bitcoin. And then I was like, I love the Night Lightning Network. This is so cool. And so <laughs> I got really excited about Lightning. I'm still learning about it. So I think that's, it's just evolving. And I and I just don't see it going away. And you've been very much welcomed by the Bitcoin community. Yes, thank you. <laughs> How's that been for you? It's been awesome. I think um, they can be wild sometimes. They're nice. I think the Bitcoin community is <laughs> nice. They're, I haven't had any bad experiences. Yeah. I think for me, um, don't raise any Ethereum. 
<laughs> they might turn on. I've only, 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 I'm so busy. I've only had the time to only look at Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I actually talked to um, an elected official of mine, Dr. Jameen Johnson, who's the representative of South Carolina. He decided to put Bitcoin on his platform and accept Bitcoin. Mm. And I just talked to a mayor that's running in Los Angeles um, about putting Bitcoin on his platform as well. And he was super, super open to it. He was he's he actually took 30 minutes just on that one topic of why he should consider adding Bitcoin to his platform. Do you know why I think this is important? And for another reason. Why? So there has been some movements across the Republican Party to uh, understand accept Bitcoin. Uh, Ted Cruz has become a supporter of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Governor Abbott has become a supporter of Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, so there's various uh, uh, Cynthia Lemus, Cynthia yeah. Lemus up in Wyoming. Um, I think it's really important that Bitcoin doesn't become a partisan partisan issue and political fight because it is something that can benefit. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal, you can, can support support you. Uh, Bitcoin is great for uh, reducing wealth disparity, and Bitcoin is also protects uh, property rights. So it, it covers both conservative and liberal issues. And I would hate it to become something that was dominated by Republican candidates and therefore Democratic candidates used it for attack. So I think what you're but saying... But there's that- a lot of Democratic candidates that do support Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. myself, Matthew, he's running in Ohio. Reverend Wendy, who's running in D.C. She's a really good friend of mine. She accepts Bitcoin donations. Um, Ro Khanna, who's a sitting congressman, he supports Bitcoin. I think what has to happen is that Someone like me that has, you know, a more, that is liberal, um, that supports, you know, Bitcoin, you, you have to also understand that there's other things that we care about as well. Of course. And, and, and I understand, I really am starting to learn the issue with printing money. That's mm-hmm. a, that's an issue. Um, like I support universal basic income and that okay. can be very controversial within the Bitcoin community. How, however, I think that instead of just like, oh, you know, just brushing me off, well, take the time, just like I took the time to understand why Bitcoin shouldn't be banned and I've really taken to it. Well, maybe try to hear where I'm coming from on having a universal basic income as a different social safety net where capitalism doesn't start at zero. And I don't think that universal basic income should be necessarily at a thousand because I looked at the federal budget. I literally, we broke down the entire math. And there is a place to ch- take exchange it with different programs, implement a VAT tax, and do it at a $500 mark, where if we know that the average person lives, like 75% of people live paycheck to paycheck, and most people are one bill away from financial ruin, well, maybe there is a net benefit for having a universal basic income, you know, okay. coupled with it. And if someone wants to take their UBI and invest it in Bitcoin— Great, go for it. Do what you got to do. But for let's say you have a single mom or a, like a college that wants to put it for fixing their tire, well then or childcare, well then that's their prerogative as well. I just think that if we want more people to support Bitcoin on the, the political at the in the in government, I think there needs to be a dialogue about the things that we care about, and not just like, oh, she's the worst person ever. It no, can't no. Be that. <laughs> Listen, I, I mean, you worked on Andrew Yang's campaign. Yes, and, and he's very big on. I know, huge. And I, I listened to. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I heard him on Rogan talking about it. Um, look, I'm not an expert on UBI, so I, I'm not. 
armed with the necessary uh, information to argue against it now. But I'll, I'll talk about the things that concern me about yeah. uh, UBI, is that I am not against the idea of a social safety net. Uh, I believe a civilized society has a social safety net to protect uh, th those people in unfortunate circumstances, uh, whether that is uh, uh, economic or even health circumstances. Mm -hmm. I am one of those people who, who wants everyone to be able to have that opportunity in life and be protected um, when required. And I think a, a civilized society does that. My problem with UBI and where it, my conflict is a, as a Bitcoiner is one of the basic tenets of Bitcoin is proof of work. And my worry is UBI creates a dis, firstly creates a disincentive to work. Also, when I heard Yang, Andrew Yang talk about it, I think he was talking about lorry drivers, but you know, going to lose their jobs to autonomous uh, trucks, like, mm -hmm. and they could get UBI. Now these truck drivers earn seventy two thousand dollars a year or something, seventy thousand dollars a year, and they would be provided with twelve thousand a year. So, th th I don't understand how they can move from being able to support their life from there to there. I also, I'm, I'm, I'm not sold on the idea that. Automation is going to destroy the the entire economy. I actually believe people are pretty resourceful, and we'll just move to different services or different ideas. So, I don't have the ammo against it. I'm just not sure if UBI is the correct answer yet. I, but but I'm not against welfare. And Every, let me so let me throw one thing in there. Sure. I actually think one of the issues is to do with wealth disparity. That's why we are discussing UBI, and I would hope Bitcoin is going to reduce wealth disparity. So, a couple of things. Every trial, every UBI trial has shown over and over again, it pulls people out of poverty. It actually allows people to go into the fields that they're most passionate about, which helps with mental health stress, you know, a decrease in drug use, alcoholism, or whatnot. So every trial has proven this over and over again. That's just data. That's just the math. That's the, re the, the research. Second, the child tax credit is a great example. It's already reduced child poverty by half. Great. Because... Um, now parents have the extra couple of hundred dollars to where they can't afford childcare or whatever they need. And I think that we have to really start being innovative with um, how we approach social safety nets. And I believe it's more of where capitalism doesn't start at zero. You know, um, I, I also think capitalism's broken at the moment. There are some systematic problems <laughs> with it, but overall, UBI allows people to make different life choices. It allows them to, um, like, so to me, you can't talk about um, homelessness without talking about foster care system. Yep. Because every kid, when they age out, they end up either, a large percentage end up immediately into poverty or in the prison system. Mm -hmm. And then the cost of serving both of those, just, just the, the the service that is millions and millions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Well, imagine, I'm just gonna, I'm just trying to use an example. Let's say kids age out of the foster care and now they have a universal basic income and they're able to go to school and we and we and we fix that system and that trans that aging out part of it, right? Now we're reducing poverty from in that regard and allowing kids to be able to go to school, be able to have their basic needs met, which every person deserves to have. And now we're not, we're not dealing with an increase in homelessness and, and paying all the money needed to, to address this issue. Because right now what's happening is we're just throwing millions and millions and millions at the problem and nothing's changing, right? So I think if we start 
allowing people to not fall into poverty in the first place, I think will solve that indirectly. And I think universal basic income does that. Like when you play Monopoly, when you pass go, what do you get? $200. That's why the game lasts forever, right? So you're, you have another chance. You, you, can, you can keep going. And not everyone has the, the, the social and the financial and relational support to prevent themselves from falling into poverty. And small businesses, talk about small businesses. If more people had disposable income, now we can support our local economy. And 67 cents for every dollar goes back into our economy. And that's because people now have the money to go to the ice cream shop or the flower shop or whatever small business. And so I think we need to just rethink and look at this differently. Yeah, I, I, I know it's not a popular term or a popular idea within Bitcoiners. I know that. I know it. I know it too. And it's something I'm going to, I'm not just going to dismiss because other Bitcoiners do. I'm going to do my research. Thank you. And I want to understand it uh, as an idea and as a concept. I also want to talk to Andrew Yang. I might hope, I'm hopefully going to interview him when I'm in. um, Do you have, do you want me to connect you with him? Well, so I'm already talking to, I'm already talking to someone over email and we're trying to make it work. Now, um, a little nod from you might help, but I think I might be doing it in in October when I'm in New York. So fingers crossed. He's he's a great person. Another person I would recommend specifically about universal basic income is Scott Santons. He's a, and he is a like an expert in it. Okay. So, well, for me, my biggest question is, well, two questions I have is, uh, where does the money come from to do it? Mm. You know, does it does it come from the money printer or does it come from taxation? Ideally, it comes from smaller government. It's shrinking the size of the government. Does everybody actually get it? Because there are people who really do not need you. But you can't means test it. And so, one, it's a VAT tax. Two, it's changing out different programs that are not working and then we so for example like if we have a pro we have programs that are showing that they're not pulling people out of poverty it's not helping or leveraging people why do we still have those programs so i think it's mm. at some point we say you know this program's not working let's try another way mm. and i think this is what i mean like maybe we get away from certain programs and maybe try this and the child tax credit is proven at a national level to be advantageous for a lot of families and it's reduced child poverty by half. So then you implement a VAT tax, which is, you know, on their big corporations and so that they're paying their fair share in taxes. And instead of doing $1,000, we do like a 400 or $500 universal basic income because when we did the math in the federal budget, that is implementable and without what raising, is the cost with, without raising the deficit so we're talk, is it is it universal is it every uh, man woman child no it's so it would be 18 years of age americans is an 18 years age until the day you expire and it would and so that's where it would start is at 18 years old because uh and is it a weekly or monthly 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 and the reason why i chose 500 is because it's fiscally responsible doesn't raise the deficit to the average person falls into financial ruin with an unexpected 400 500 bill and what is that like 250 million adults in the us i mean it's population 330 million ish yeah 250 million ish adults okay yeah. what's my math here 250 million times 500 uh, I'd have to do the math. What is yeah. that? Uh, well, is that one? Is that twelve and a half billion a month? Well, it would be to implement it. It would be like a like in the trillions, I think. But the return on the investment would be 
far better. It would be far greater than that. But is that a societal benefit or an economic benefit? Both. Be- yeah. Because right now we have a mental health issue. We have parents that can't even afford child. Like as a single woman, mm-hmm. right? Like I, one of the reasons why I supported Andrew during the Democratic primary, because when he mentioned the UBI, I had to like listen to him a couple times to really wrap my head around it. I was like, this is an interesting, different idea. Yeah, you know, that that sounds reasonable. And then I was like, you know, if I had that, what would I do? That was my first question. Like, if I had a thousand dollars a month, what would I do with it? And my answer was, I would adopt. I would okay. absolutely adopt. I'm super, super single. You I want did. a baby. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I want to be a mom one day. Okay. I was like, I would adopt if I had that. Okay. But because I don't have the disposable or the extra income, I'm a teacher's salary. Yeah. I can't adopt. And there's a lot of kids that would be adopt that need to be adopted. Okay. I also threw this out to some of my other single friends. And they said, you know, Erica, I thought the same thing. I I would adopt too. So I think you'd be surprised by what people would spend that extra money on. That's not the bit that worries me. I, yeah. Well, you said not work. That you think it incentivizes people to not work. And I don't think that's true. I think it I think the work would just look differently. I think that people would do the things that they care about. It supports artists, it supports people that have to take care of their 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 loved ones. Like my grandmother's health is declining and now my mom has to take care of her and so that would help with that I I, I think it brings no I understand yeah. what you're saying like okay. and we in the UK I'm sure we have a, um, a specific benefit a carer's allowance and things and um, like my father would have been able to claim he's in Ireland they have a, one there he could have claimed it for looking after my mom he didn't because in the end he said I would do this anyway when um, when she had cancer so there's there are different benefits for that um, and I'm not saying everyone would not work I'm just saying some might not Then work. that's their choice. Yeah, of course. But also, I don't think it replaces certain salaries that are, are lost to automation. The, my bigger question for it is, is where, and, and where I do my study, is when you talk about the uh, examples that every time it's been implemented, it's lifted people out of poverty. Improved mental health. Improved mental Drug health. Drug use has gone down. I, I'll stick to the economic side for the okay. moment for a specific reason, is that these are micro-tests within a side, inside mm-hmm. a macro economy. So it's raised those people up within that wider economy by giving them that money. What I don't know is that if you scale this to an entire country, it's not a micro improvement within a macro economy. It's, it's the entire country. Does that lead to, does the economics across the entire country work? Does that lead to an, a higher inflation? This is what I don't know. Yeah. So. Rather than answer it now because I'm not an expert, yeah, yeah. and hopefully I'm going to talk to Andrew. I'm going to do some research on it because I don't yeah, want to just should. I don't want to dismiss it just because other people have. I'd want to understand it. I appreciate that, and you know, um, couple things. One, last Thanksgiving I was driving home in my district, and there was a line of cars like two miles long. And I was like, what is going on? What's happening in my hood? What's going on? So I pulled over and I started walking up to each car. Where are you in line? There were moms in line for diapers, in line, waiting two, three hours for just diapers Mm -hmm. and baby wipes. And if they just had that extra money, they wouldn't be waiting in this line. And then you wouldn't have a local leader trying to figure out how they're going to get the diapers to everyone. I think at some point we have to just think of humanity, you know, just like, just like the injustice of that. And people do work. Like I volunteer at a food bank every Tuesday. Yep. These are people that work full time, but they still don't have enough to be able to just get put food on the table. Yep. And so I just think as a society, as a whole, we should look after one another. I do think that people should work. 
Um, I that's my personal opinion. I I, I think that um, you know you I, there is value in hard work. I, I really believe that. And the child tax credit on the larger scale has proven to work. So take the other UBI trials I mentioned and just look at just the child tax credit. It has been it's proven to work. And I and I and I'm saying this. Maybe we th- we think certain programs are in place right now and try another alternative. If we're doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome, that's insanity. That's Albert Einstein, Einstein. my favorite yeah. person ever. But it's like, but it really falls into insanity. And UBI is actually a very conservative idea. They do it in Alaska. They do an oil dividend, and it's wildly popular. And people loved having the cash payments during the pandemic. Three, they got three. There were three different cash payments that were distributed. So. But we are also now in a, a place of quite high inflation. But that's not because of the payments. That's because the unemployment, the extension, that people were getting more off unemployment than they were working. And we also have to account for I think the it's a range of, of issues. It's a range, but also the amount of deaths that took place. You know, there's a lot of different things that are happening. So yeah. it's not just because they got three checks. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, like the, the economics of it is super important because look, if, if a UBI program costs trillions a year, I'm not sure what the US GDP is per year. Is it like, it's like five and a half trillion? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'd, I'd have to look it but up. But we wouldn't be adding it. It would be replacing with other programs and implementing a different taxation. Yeah. So this is where I need to do my research because yeah. the, the most important thing is like, and I'm not promoting the thousand. Andrew, when he was running, yeah. he was saying the thousand. I'm saying half of that. But the the, the wider point being, it's oh, like one more thing. Can I say one more yeah, thing? Yeah, of course. And another reason why, and it and it, it came back to me. Another reason why you have to give it to everyone and not means tested because millions of dollars go into just like who gets it, who not the administration yeah, piece. And so we would save millions of dollars just by not having to deal with all that. Well, so one of the arguments I've seen for UBI when it was discussed in the UK is is the administration and the complexity around the welfare, or, you know, the social care system and all the different benefits you can claim. If you replace that with a single payment, you eradicate a lot of costs. So I've yep. heard that argument yeah. as well. I do feel like it should have an option on, on like the ability to option out of it. So like myself, I would say, no, I don't need this. I don't want this. I don't have to. It just, I think it just makes everyone an American. Like you're an American. It's what you get as an American citizen. Do yeah. with it what you want. Well, so the most important thing for me, one of the most important things for me is just understanding the economics. So what yeah. I'm going to do is hopefully I will talk to Andrew. So yeah, yeah. What, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my research now. This is going to be like my my homework, okay. which hopefully you can you can mark and hopefully I get an A grade and I'm going to do that. Um, what are, what are, what other policies are important to you? I know homelessness is a big one for you, and it's it's a big it's a big issue for me. I'm a donor to a shelter in the UK. Um, I I'm a big fan of Los Angeles, but it's the first time I've been here since the pandemic. Um, I always enjoyed Venice, going down to Venice Beach. I haven't been down since I've got here. I'm preparing to go down. I'm I'm expecting to see a different Venice from last time I was there. It existed before, but it was manageable, and it was kind of a nice community as well. I mean. I think every, the, the homeless community there and the locals actually had quite a good relationship. Um, I found there was a lot of creativity within the homeless community and a lot of people trying to work and earn money. And you know, yes, there was drug issues, but I've been told it's very different now. And so homelessness is a big issue for me. But And there's a really good interview Rogan did. I can't remember if it's with the governor or the mayor of Texas where he talked about the issues of homelessness. Where do you stand on this? I know I know it's one important for you. It's very important to me. I mean, it's the number one issue in my district is okay. the increase in homelessness. And I 
think that we keep putting band-aids on the problem and not getting to the root of it. And I believe that very strongly that we need to fix our foster care system. And okay. it's like what I mentioned earlier is what's happening is a lot of people, when they age out of the foster care system, they fall immediately into homelessness or prison. And so if we address our foster care system and, and that transition, that would reduce our this population by half. Okay. And so for me, we got to get to the source of the bleeding and that's where the bleeding is. I think that we need to invest in mental health and mm-hmm. ha- have proper facilities. We can't just keep like putting people in a hotel for six months. Then they go back. That's back on the street. Unfortunately, that's not solving the problems. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay. And then again, implementing a universal basic income, which would prevent people from falling into poverty in the first place. You know, that's, that's the entire point of it. Well, I mean, and and yeah, but and our education be, system. You, and when I say, I'm sorry. And yeah. when I say our education system, is that not everyone needs to go to college? Yeah. You know, we don't talk about trade school. We don't talk about you know entrepreneurship. I think when we we have to modernize our government, even if we took, let's just take like the all the different agencies that address homelessness. Why don't we have one centralized system that speaks to each other so we can see how we manage this? This was discussed, uh, and bring up Rogan again, on Rogan this week between him and, I forget the guy's first name, Schellenberger. He wrote the book San Francisco where he discussed the homeless problem there. Uh, he was talking about you know these agencies that don't talk to each they other. They don't talk to one another. He also, he said the central issue, actually, he said the central issue is drugs. You have to deal with drug addiction, and you have to you have to provide you have to have consequences. You have provide support, but have consequences for people as well within that system. What did he say the consequences should be? So things like if you provide shelter and accommodation for homeless people, you may have rooms which are shared, and then individual rooms. Um, and if you want an individual room, you have to be clean, and you have to go to the job that's been sourced from you. If you don't do that, the consequences you don't get a single room. That was just uh, uh, one specific... And he thinks that's the way to solve drug no, no, use? He, he doesn't think... He thinks that that's... I'm giving you one yeah, small yeah, part yeah, yeah. of a two-hour interview, but that was one. He was saying there has to be uh, uh, action and consequences. Uh, but he, the main point being is that one of the central issues is actually drug use. And why do you think people use drugs? Because they're depressed, right? Or they're unhappy. You know, I think we live in a time where it's hard to just be but happy. Also, sometimes they do because it's fun. I've never. I don't even smoke weed. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't I mean, do I any don't. drugs. So well, weed, I, weed, I, weed is for junkies. But, I've, <laughs> but I, like, I don't like. I so I. I don't know. Like, I don't know that asset. I never. I don't do those things. But I've done a I, lot. I, <laughs> I'm not now, but I like historically. Okay. Yeah. So, so I. I can't. I don't know if it's just recreationally and it's just for fun for people. Um, but I do think that. Going back to young people, there is, I think, there's social pressures. I think that we're out of whack, you know, and I think we need to find a way to look at how we're approaching child rearing and our school system. And, you know, we have so many broken homes now. We have all these different things that are causing people to use drugs. Like vaping has is through the roof amongst young people right now. It's not really talked about. You know, I think social media, the pressures, all these different things. But if we're talking about addressing homelessness, yes, that's an aspect. Um that needs to be addressed. But I think that we have these systems in place that are not working. And so we have to fix the system if we want 
them to work. And we have elected officials that make money and benefit off a broken system. Fix the money. Fix the problems. Yeah. Do you, do you feel at all overwhelmed with the... Because there's so many big, complicated issues here you're talking about. These are None of them are small. Do you feel overwhelmed by it? Keeps me up at night. Yeah. Because it's it's... Not In just, those few hours you have spare. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's not just one person. It yeah. takes a bunch of well-intentioned people to actually care and want to solve the problems, you know? And there's a lot of money to be made off the poor. And that and that's the that's the sad thing. Is that there's a lot of money to be made off the poor that they they benefit by people living in these waking up on concrete that like they benefit from that and it's and they benefit off women waiting two hours for diapers or they benefit off the line at the food bank that's an hour long you know it's 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 why getting behind everyday people that can relate to everyday people is imperative it's it's really important it's going to take a lot of work it's going to take years decades probably to to really fix these things but we have to be intentional about it so not if so when you win thank you for saying that when you win <laughs> do you we have to give up teaching yes you'll have to give up t- teaching yeah. and because that's because you'll have to be in washington three days a week um i i don't know the oh, don't logistic, know. Okay. logistics of it but um i know you go back and forth between your district as you should if you're elected official you should come back home just saying um <laughs> listen in brad <laughs> Not just your buddies in Washington, mate. But I want to serve on the Education and Labor Committee in Congress. So I will still be deeply connected. And my signature part of my platform is my kids have a voice too, which basically states that elected officials are involved in the education process and that they show up at their at their their the schools of their their youth constituents that they host town halls for young people so basically let's say your kids had an idea of like how to address homelessness mm-hmm. and they do a whole town hall and a presentation over it then we as the adults and people in the community come and listen to their ideas and really consider it so that's something that I want to do but so I'll still say deeply connected to the school system, obviously. That's who I'm fighting for in a lot of ways. I'm fighting for everyone, but like that's a near and dear pocket to me. Well, it's, it's really infectious. I mean, I just I just wish you all the best. I want you to win this. And, Thank you. And I want you to go and make change because we don't have enough people in politics who really genuinely care. We don't. Who have the right uh, morals, right ethics, who are trying to deal with big problems. We seem to be surrounded by fucking morons. Um, and I'm I, like nodding. <laughs> well, it's not, it's, it doesn't matter whether it's the US or the UK. It's very similar problems. There are, there are the occasional, there's the occasional person that's likable or the person has occasional policy that you like, but it is a broken system yeah. with misaligned incentives which I think money is at the root of. And I think that's why the Bitcoin community is thriving because mm-hmm. they're fed up with this broken system. And and because the government will not listen to their constituents and the everyday people. And now you have this emerging community and this emerging technology and it's taking over. It's a it's an influential uh 
community. I I just think that it's because they're not being heard. So it's kind of like, you know, we're going to do it our way. And we're going to route around them. Okay, so how do we help you? Um, The biggest thing right now is to help us reach reach our million-dollar goals by January 30th. You have to be a United States citizen, and the max donation is $2,900. And if you are in the San Fernando Valley, the CA30, volunteer. We need door knockers, phone bankers, and tell every and anyone you know to get behind our campaign. And you've got some support now, obviously. A uh, lot of support. Glad to have you on the show. And Thank I you. want people to hear this. You've got CJ helping you. Uh, Corey, you've spoken with Dennis. Yeah. Hopefully Jack Dorsey. Jack, you're listening. <laughs> um, you've had some really good support. Um, and I think uh, I, I think people will listen. Not everyone. I, I expect, listen, when this goes out, maybe don't look at the comments on YouTube because I think some of the people are not going to agree with some of the things like maybe UBI and... But uh, that's okay. And we yeah. also have to get in a place where we can respectfully agree to disagree. As long as But they as, won't be respectful. But I'll be respectful because well, that's, that's my character. But good. I'm okay with someone disagreeing with me. And I'm also okay with changing my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not so stuck in my my ways that if you someone s- you sound crazy. <laughs> but if someone presents a better argument yeah. and really valid points that are sound and just I will listen to that. And I think we need more of that too. Mm-hmm. That's why problems don't get solved because people are just like, I know it all. I, I have all the answers. And they're so quick to just write someone off without even having a proper conversation. Like my thing is like, what I love about you or just, just from talking, I'm going to learn about that. I'm going to learn about that. Can you imagine if I said when someone, when Dennis reached out to me about Bitcoin, Ugh, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Right? Like, well, you can't do that. we got to give people the room to learn. Some people see changing their mind as a weakness. And I see being able to change your mind as a strength, to admit you're wrong as a strength. I did it I did it today. I put out a bitty, uh, shitty tweet about somebody, and I reflected on it today, and I was like, you know what? That was wrong of me, and I retweeted it with an apology or admit Aww. I was wrong. I think... And I think a lot of us are wrong a lot of the time we and are. need to change our mind a lot. But I think people see it as a weakness. I think it's a, I think it's a superpower. I think the ability to change your mind and not care because you want, you're, in, you're in, uh, searching for the truth and the best, I see it as, a, I see it as an absolute strength. So, yeah. well, listen, how do people follow your campaign? How do they support your campaigns? Tell, me, tell them where to go. So, Erica for Congress, so A-A-R-I-K-A, forcongress.com mm-hmm. that's you can sign up for a newsletter and twitter it's a a r i k a roads r h o d e s and then our instagram is erica for congress a a r i k a for congress and those are probably the best ways to keep up with our campaign brilliant well listen i wish you all the best thank you if you win win I, sorry <laughs> when when you win i'm going to come back and uh, I'm going to interview you again. Yes. We're going to talk about what you're going to do. Yep. And maybe we'll do it in Washington. Maybe we'll do yep. it here. Who knows? We'll do it in no. my office. We'll we do could do it in my congressional office. We'll do it in San, San Fernando Valley. Okay, we'll do it in my district. Yeah, yes. we'll do it in your district and uh, we'll do it again. And I, 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 Maybe, be, let's just manifest this now. Maybe right. what we do is we get a bunch of our young people let's to come while we interview. I'll be so nervous. And then we can do it for our kids. We could do a Q&A as well. We can do a Q&A. Love it. Okay, manifesting. Well, listen, look, <laughs> we will stay in touch whatever happens, yes. but I wish you the best. I hope you win. I think Brad Sherman's a bit of a dick, so I want you to beat him. So good luck. Thank you. All the best and Thank hope you. you win. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I'm so excited.
Okay, if you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, you can hop into my Telegram group or hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, if you heard this message every week and you've never done it, hop on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Hopefully, you love the show and you're like, you know what, Pete, I'm going to give you five stars. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you come every week and you hate it and you think it's shit and you want to leave one star. That's fine. I take anything. All right. I love you all and I'll see you all soon. Bye.